Today we begin a new chapter in our Sunday morning series through the book of Genesis. So please go with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 4. I don't know that we'll make our way through the entirety of this book. And when we began this series, I mentioned I'd probably go at least the first 11 chapters. And so we'll just have to see how the Lord leads when we get to that point. If I did my math correctly, with no guest preachers or any other absences, it would take a minimum of nine and a half years (laughs) to complete Genesis. But at our current pace, it would take nearly 14 years to finish the whole book. Are we really up for that? I don't know if I am, because Adrian would be in her 60s by then. Can I really preach a series that has touched three decades of her life? What's that? I heard that, but I'm always younger. Amen. I would think things would begin to speed up as we go, but I said that through the five years in John, and it never happened. Well, in chapter 1 of Genesis, we get the whole creation account. In chapter 2, we get a zoomed-in view of the creation of mankind on day 6. And at the end of chapter 2, everything is just as God created it. It's perfect. Everything's in harmony. Husband and wife are getting along with no issues. It's bliss. But then in chapter 3, it all goes wrong. Eve gives in to Satan's deceptive temptation Adam just flat out rebels against God, and now sin has entered the world. And though we see God's remedy for sin and a clear picture of salvation by the end of chapter 3, in chapter 4 we begin to see the horrible aftermath of sin entering the world. And so let's begin this morning by reading verses 1 through 8 of Genesis chapter 4. And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived, and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted. And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. So this chapter begins with the first husband and wife becoming the first father and mother. When God created man and woman and performed the first wedding, if you will, He blessed them saying, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. So this is a blessing from the Lord. The Bible teaches that it is God who opens and closes the womb. 
Therefore, all children are a blessing from God. Psalm 127.3 says, Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is His reward. For this reason, I see no exceptions for abortion. No matter how heart-wrenching that situation may be in which that conception came, I just can't find it anywhere. Now, if you happen to be one who has been through the painful process of an abortion, and it is painful both physically and emotionally, then know that God will forgive you. You just need to call upon Him. And I want you to know that I'm not your enemy. We want you to experience victory through God's mercy and grace, which has been provided through the sacrifice of Christ. But I hope you understand that I must preach against the killing of life in the womb. It, It is never the answer, and there are always alternatives. Now, this blessing of children comes to Adam and Eve after the fall. And I mention this because even though they have been expelled from the Garden of Eden, we continue to see God's blessing upon them. Don't ever think that God is done with you because of your past. Don't just think because you have a sinful past, there can't be forgiveness. I want to tell you, there's forgiveness. That's why God had Christ die for us. I'm not suggesting we can live any old way we please and expect to have the blessings of God upon our life. But I am saying God offers forgiveness. And when we acknowledge our sinfulness and seek God's forgiveness, God will begin to bless you once again. And I have to say this because there are too many people who believe God can't use them because of something you did in your past. Well, you don't know what I did. And and, and God, surely He couldn't use someone like me. And I just don't believe that God wants to bless me because of what I've done in my past. That's not biblical. Study your Bible. It's full of people who failed God. And yet God used them and and God went on to bless them because He forgave them once they sought for forgiveness and and God's love overcame that and they went on to be greatly used by God. For some reason the idea is that there's got to be this perfect vessel that God will use and, and nothing outside of that idea of perfection is usable by God. But listen, I'm telling you that God uses whosoever will Come to Him in faith. Satan wants you bound by your sin. He wants you held captive. And for this reason, Jesus said He came to preach deliverance unto the captives. There is freedom and liberty in Christ. You don't have to live with the burden of your past sins. Call on God to forgive you. And here's the key, rest in His forgiveness. Trust that what His Word says about your sinfulness is true. So while Adam and Eve have sinned against God, 
And while God did punish them justly, He removed them from the Garden of Eden. God still had foretold of the promised seed to come. And after they took God at His word, God forgave them, provided an atonement. We saw this at the end of chapter 3. And now God continues to bless them with fruitfulness. We see they named their first child Cain, which means to acquire or a possession. And as is sometimes the case, the meaning of a name in the Bible is given to us in the verse, at least a hint of it. And we see that here. She says, it says, Adam and Eve knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord, a, a possession. The root word in, in Cain's name, one of them is the same for the, the word gotten here. And when you look at the rest of the um, etymology of the name Cain, it means a spear with the implication of, of striking fast. And if you drill down one more layer, I found this interesting in the Strong's Concordance, and there's the idea of wailing. And it's even translated into English as lament and as a mourning woman. And so the meaning here could be that she acquired Cain through greatly multiplied sorrow of striking labor and pain to deliver this child into the world, just as God said will be the curse upon the woman back in Genesis 3.16. And so this may just be a fulfillment of that. Some feel Eve believed Cain would be the promised seed that God foretold of in Genesis 3.15. She says, I have gotten a man from the Lord. The thinking is that Cain was literally sent from the Lord down to earth. And, and in that sense, she would have believed that he has come to bruise the head of Satan, striking fast, like a spear. I don't think she would have been completely out of line to be thinking this way. They had recently received the promise of Genesis 3.15, and I'm not sure they would have completely understood that it would require a virgin birth as of yet. So she may have believed Cain was the fulfillment of God's promise. But if this was her thinking, we know she was obviously wrong. And certainly we can be guilty of misreading things. Remember when God told the prophet Samuel to go and anoint the next king of Israel? He shows up at Jesse's house and he sees Eliab and he says, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But he was wrong too. He said, Good night. Who can we trust? God. And so if Eve, if Eve had the promised seed in mind with Cain, we know she's off base. But how long would it have taken her to realize this? I don't know. But the Bible says that we're all conceived in sin. And that we all come from the womb speaking lies. Some believe the realization that she had given birth to a sinner and not the Savior. She realizes now that this, this young man has their sin nature. And because of that, she names her second son Abel. So what does that mean? It means vanity, emptiness. What a great name for a kid, amen? 
I mean, if, if, if she was a blonde, I get it, but... Uh, <laughs> airhead, okay, anyway. Um, well, it's a good crowd this morning. Um, <clears throat> Justin, you did not warm them up well enough, brother. <laughs> but his, Abel's name means emptiness, vanity, something that is fleeting, something that is, is passing away. David wrote in Psalm 39.5 of all men, Verily, every man at his best state is altogether vanity. It's the exact same word for Abel. Every man at his best state is altogether able. The thought here is it didn't take long to realize she's got a sinner on her hands. He's not the promised So in her disappointment, she names her next son Abel. But there is a chance that Cain and Abel were twins. So that interpretation wouldn't hold water if that were true. I don't think she would give birth and go, oh, Cain, give birth again and go, ah, Abel. Maybe, I don't know. Moms, moms can do those kind of things, whatever. But it, that wouldn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And, and the reason some believe that they may have been twins is because in verse 1 it says she conceived, but verse 2 doesn't say she conceived again. For example, in Genesis 29, the Lord saw that Leah was hated and He opened her womb. And Genesis 29.32 says, And Leah conceived. And then the next three verses begin with, And she conceived again to show that the four sons that are listed there in a row were all separate pregnancies. But we don't find that here in Genesis 4. It only says she again bare, which means to add two. So it could be she bore twins, but it also doesn't have to mean that because Genesis 38.5 uses the same Hebrew word for again, and there it is translated, and she yet conceived again. Speaking of Judah's wife. You say, what are you trying to tell us? I have no idea, but this is what I studied, Okay. I spent, and because the fact is, we're not given enough information to know uh, for sure why they named their children what they did. So your guess is as good as mine, and I'll leave you to ponder it for yourself. And I do apologize for wasting the last five minutes of our life. Just in case I lost you there, let me quickly summarize the point, though. Uh, either one, Cain was so named with the promised seed in mind, but their disappointment led to their second son being named Abel, or two... Cain is so named because giving birth was painful and being followed up with another birth right after. This is not only painful, ugh, vanity, Abel. And again, I spent way too much time studying all that and I still have no peace about anything I just gave you. One thing is for sure, she recognizes God's favor and that their child has been received as a blessing from the Lord. Matthew Henry wrote this, Though Eve bore him with the sorrows that were the consequences of sin, yet she did not lose the sense of the mercy in her pains. Comforts, though alloyed, are more than we deserved. And therefore our complaints must not drown our thanksgivings. Well, that's a good thought. Now, at the end of verse 2, we get the occupation of these two brothers. Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain was a tiller of the ground. Now, these two sons were born to parents who had been given dominion over the whole earth. But notice that being heirs to such a large inheritance did not exclude them from being gainfully employed. Whoop! All right, we're going there this morning. Adam and Eve did not raise their children to be idle. 
but they were raised in useful occupations. And we ought to raise our children to be productive members of society. Those who will work for the glory of God. It's good to teach children to accomplish chores early in their life. Oh, they're too young. No, they're not. That little booger can do what you tell them. And then you add to their responsibilities as they grow and increase in knowledge and stature. We need to be preparing our children for the day when they will leave their father and mother and they will either cleave to their spouse or they will reach an age where they said, I've had enough, I need some independence. Everybody's acting like all of a sudden. Come on, y'all ain't that spiritual, okay? Don't be guilty of trying to keep your children around forever. Listen, I'm not just saying words to hear myself speak. I'm telling you stuff that I've had to deal with as a pastor. And people want to hang on to their kids to the point that they stifle their life and they miss God's will because they won't let them go out there and fly. And we need to be preparing our children for the day that they will leave. Children are like arrows in the hands of a mighty man, which means they must be designed to be shot. Now, there's some rare exceptions, I'm sure. The Bible does not address every exception on every issue. But there will come a point when they need to move out of the nest, they need to fly on their own in order that they might fulfill God's will for their life. This doesn't mean we shoot them out too early or that we forsake them when they go. Hopefully we're maintaining a healthy relationship with our children, even when they move to Puerto Rico. (laughs) Giving them counsel along the way. I guess we had a death scare the other day. Somebody thought their propane tank was leaking and called the who? The fire department? Where's Jill Connor? She knows all this. And, and so the neighbors across the street, they all go to the same church and work together. And Sydney and Grant weren't answering the phone and the dogs weren't barking. And I guess Daisy was quiet for a change. And, <laughs> and they thought they had died. Anyway, um, that has nothing. Yeah, they're good. They're healthy. There was no leak. There's no leak. All right. Uh, anyway, listen, we've got to get them to that point, but we ought to be maintaining that healthy relationship, giving them counsel. But the reality is there's coming a day when they need to move on, and we must help prepare them for when that day arrives. Yeah. I, I, listen, I'm not suggesting that kids shouldn't allow to be, ki- be allowed to be kids. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with recreation along the way. But you ought to do what you can to instill a work ethic in them. What are you saying? Don't let your children be lazy bums who just mooch off of you. When they are mature enough to handle it, make them go get a job. Especially your young men. If you're raising daughters to be a homemaker, there's plenty of work to be done at home at all times. All right. Now, when the Bible mentions there are two occupations, it's not drawing attention that one is better than the other. Uh, Both professions here were needful. They were both honorable. But it does appear that the mentioning of their occupations is setting the stage for what they are about to bring as an offering before the Lord. Verses 3 through 5. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. So we see here that it was in the process of time. An offering has been made. Um, it has been brought before the Lord by Cain and Abel. 
the process of time, it means the end of time. And so a lot of people think this either means the end of a week, as in the Sabbath, or this is the end of the year. And I'm leaning towards this is probably the end of the year, the time of the ingathering of fruits. And Exodus 23.16 does say that the, the, the feast of ingathering is the end of the year. And here's, here's where I want to just, I didn't get as far in this sermon as I wanted to. So if you're starting to worry that we're not going to make it through all this, it's okay we're not. Um, but where did these two sons get the idea to bring an offering before the Lord? The logical answer is they must have learned something from their parents. There was no one else around. To our knowledge, there was no written Word of God at this point to guide them. As far as we know, God hasn't mandated anything yet. And I want to tell you that the most impactful and meaningful relationship and influence in the lives of children ought to be their parents. Or guardians or whatever the case. And no matter what, whether it's good or bad, you are an influence in their lives whether you like it or not. Because children are far more perceptive than we give them credit for. And when we understand our God-given role as parents and the influence that we should be for God in the lives of our children, then we should come to the realization that we need to teach our children the ways of God when they are young and malleable. Consider Abraham with Isaac. Genesis 18, 19, the Lord said of Abraham, For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment. And sure enough, when we get to Genesis chapter 2, Abraham and Isaac are on their way up the mountain. And Isaac had been instructed in the ways of the Lord enough from his father that he looks to Abraham and he says, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Something wasn't right to Isaac that day. He had been with his father in real church enough to know something was off. Abraham had taught his son well. And Abraham started early in Isaac's life. And we must introduce our children to God and the things of God early and often. We must pour the Word of God into them at every opportunity. We must educate them on what God expects. We must train them in what is acceptable Christian service. And and listen, we must be diligent. Deuteronomy 6, 4-9 through Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. And thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. 
And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the post of thy house and on thy gates. So we are to teach our children diligently, which means you are pointing them to God, the ways of God, with intensity. We are to pierce them with God's Word. This is what diligent means here. I took the time here. It means to prick them when they begin to veer off course. We are to sharpen them by the Word of God, and it means that we whet their appetite for God's Word. That is your job and my job as parents. To our children. When we are doing things right, we are taking advantage of opportunities to train and instruct others in the ways of the Lord. We don't get lazy. We don't say, well, I've had a long day. And I would, I would even say, look, it, the, to the best of your ability, I would even say, don't say, look, we'll just talk about this later. There may be a time for that, but listen, you need to strike while the iron's hot. Say, when are we supposed to be doing these things? When you sit in your house. When you walk by the way. When you go to bed. When you get back up the next day. In other words, you're to be doing this at all times. God's Word is constantly to be before us. But what many parents are hoping today is that if I just bring my children to church with some form of regularity, whatever that means to that family, if I just bring them to church, then they're, they're doing their due diligence. That's not true. Please get this. The church should complement your home. Not stand in direct contrast to your home. A Christian school should only complement the home. Not contradict what is happening in the home. If you're not the same person in your home that you are in here on Sundays, then you are not diligently teaching your children. And if the only teaching your family receives is on Sundays, you're not diligently teaching your family. And because your children are so perceptive, in time they will begin to put it together that who you pretend to be on Sundays is not who you are throughout the rest of the week. And I'm telling you, it'll cause children to become resentful and bitter. Now the reason we're to take advantage of every opportunity is because when our children begin to act for themselves stand on their own. Our hope is they will willingly bring an offering unto the Lord of their own accord. That they will have put it together. That this is what God expects. I have seen it in my parents. I have seen it in the church, at home, both places. And I know this is what God expects. In our text, Cain and Abel, they're doing just that. I believe they saw an example in their parents. And now that they are of age, they are willingly bringing an offering unto the Lord. This is every 
godly parent's prayer. And, and maybe you have to be a parent to understand the, the impact of, what is it, Third John verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Now, please don't get ahead of me because we know where the text is going. And we don't have time to discuss all the differences between their offerings and them. I mean, obviously Abel's on the right track, Cain isn't. But for now and for sake of application, I just simply observe how they have picked up on the practice of their parents. They had been taught by their parents. They had observed their parents. And now they are putting into practice what they have observed and, and been taught. And I believe they came to this day because they saw something in Adam and Eve which caused them to know that their parents' worship was genuine to them. Adrian and I have always said, our children, if they end up forsaking their upbringing, and I pray they won't, but if they choose to do so, it will not be because they can look at me and say, you are a hypocrite. And whether they fully get it or not, they're not going to be able to say, Mom and Dad, it wasn't real. But they ought to be able to look at my life and her life, and they should be able to say, I don't know about all that God stuff, but I know to them it's real. Whoop! What does that take? It takes effort. I want them to know that our worship of God was genuine. Hopefully we all can agree today that you have a far greater chance of your children walking in truth if they observe it in you first. And since Christ was the final sacrifice for our sin, we no longer are required by God to bring sacrifices in the same manner as we have in our text and in the, in the Old Covenant. Therefore, we are now told in the New Testament or the New Covenant, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. If in the process of time, we want our children to give themselves as a living sacrifice to God, then they really need to see that example in us first. Now, I know God can overcome any, situa any situation. Hallelujah. But statistically speaking, your children will adopt what they, see, what they see from their parents and what they see in the home. If it's important to you, there's a greater chance it'll be important to them. If you offer your life a living sacrifice, there's a greater chance they will do so as well. Ultimately, nothing's a guarantee. If how we live as parents determines the salvation of our children, then we have reduced salvation to a works-based experience and it is no more of grace. So everyone must decide for themselves. And as we will see next week with Cain and Abel, they both had the same example, but we see two radically different outcomes. So each one has to make their own decision. Now I hope I have communicated this effectively this morning because we do know where the text is heading. But as parents, I need to ask you, are you setting the best example for your children? Are they learning the ways of the Lord by how you live? Are you diligently teaching your children with every opportunity? Is the church complementing your home life? 
or is your home in opposition to church life? Be the right example. Be the best influence you can be for your children in the ways of godliness. If you want them to be a living sacrifice, then you need to be a living sacrifice. Let's pray.